2: economic
0: indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature how are you doing there it's David here on a miserable miserable Dublin evening it's the podcast the weekly podcast that tries to make economics a little bit more comprehensible a little bit less full of jargon. And hopefully a wee bit more relevant for all of us. Now this week, I want to talk about the link between wealth inequality, Brexit and populism that we're seeing all around the world. And it's the usual. I'm joined by John. What's the story, man? Hey, how's it going? All is good. All is good. I have been running around the place this week. Like in Egypt. You've
2: doing, loads of, uh, stuff, doing you? loads of shows and stuff.
0: Doing loads of shows and gigs. I tell you what, I've just put in, we're just putting Kilconomics to bed. Oh, yeah. And that's on the weekend of the 9th of November. We've got some brilliant guests. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winner. Brilliant, coming yeah. In. Uh, we have the Chief Economist of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane. Oh, right. He signed up to this about a year ago before he knew that this would be the weekend after Brexit. And so he's, he's the guy who's going to have to figure out what's going on. Uh, we have Stephanie Kelton, who is Bernie Sanders' economic advisor. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have an amazing economist called Betsy Stevenson, who was Obama's economic advisor, the head of the Special Council on Economics. So we have a huge, huge... Do anyone on the Trump side? We have a good few people on the Brexit side. And they'll they'll do the, they'll do the trump for us. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, because you know, you're right. You need you always need somebody on the other side. It's always a great weekend. That it's a great weekend. I mean, Dan Ariely's there. Yeah, Dan again. is coming again. Dan Ariely, who's who's just a brilliant guy, and he's going to be Rory Sutherland. You know Rory Sutherland. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a really it's a really really good lineup. I'll also be talking to Malcolm Gladwell. You know the great Canadian. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah and that's that's an event coming up as part of the Ducky Book Festival. Chris That's on in the Olympia on the. 29th of November, which is the day after you and I are starring <laughs> in Vicker Street. I'm yeah, really, I'm really the looking podcast forward. festival. I'm really looking forward. How are you How are you feeling about that? I'm
2: terrified, but I'm not a. You know me, Mac. I, I'm a. I'm a sound guy. I'm a guy who fiddles in the background, but uh, I'm not really a front of mic guy. But yep. hey, you know. Give me a stage. I'll use it.
0: You, no, we, you'll be absolutely fine. Once you see the whites in the eyes of the audience.
2: <laughs> that's, the bit, <laughs> that's the bit that terrifies me.
0: Don't worry. Don't worry. You'll be grand. We'll have a couple. i tell you, you see those cocktails that JM makes for us?
2: We need lots of them.
0: We have about six of them before we go on. Yeah. Right? Careful. Okay. You need that. It's a great combination. You need that. Just the combination where the inhibition is gone, the fluency comes back but you can't tip over. It's a really fine line. It's a fine line. You can't tip over into the... And another thing (laughs) I'm going to tell you about. (laughs) So it's been a really, really busy, busy week, but like really good week, putting all these things together. We're going to have a lot to talk about. And the great thing is we're going to talk to a lot of interesting people over the course of the next four or five weeks.
2: Brilliant. That's brilliant. So come here to me. Brexit this week. Let's do our, our little Brexit hit because we're in the last month. Johnson has finally put a proposal together I'm not sure what to make of it. There seems to be all sorts of of reaction to it, and you know, it's a do or die thing. What, what do you think? What's your take on that? Well,
0: I I hope we reject it. Uh, you know, I, really, I was, yeah, absolutely. I was up the north the last couple of days as well, and you know, my family up there. Mm-hmm. Some of them voted for Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but I, you know, I have a real soft spot for the north because of Shannon because we've been married to a norther, and I think that. This idea that you have a Northern Irish Assembly that every four years will take a vote on whether or not they're in the EU or in the UK. That's what the right. DUP have kind of inserted. Now, think about the logic of that, right? Northern Ireland needs capital. It needs jobs. It needs prosperity. More than more than the South, more than the Republic. You know, we, we have lots of stuff going on. They really need... To believe in the future in Northern Ireland. Think about a company. Can you imagine a multinational company say, Oh, we're going to invest in that place, but every four years we don't know if they're in Britain or in the EU. Yeah. Every four years we don't know if they're going to be regulations or going to be European or British. Every four years we don't know if the trade barriers are. Or... Nobody's going to touch the North. So this latest Johnson wheeze will strangle whatever possibility there is of Northern Ireland becoming a normal economy. And I believe, as you know, that one of our responsibilities in the South, one of our many responsibilities, is not just to our own people, but to the future of the island. Yeah. This all-island economy, the fact that, you know, this all-island economy is soon to be close to 7 million people, it's quite significant. And I think that we need to protect that. And we need to protect it actually from what I would say is the Brexit, DUP angle, so what you want is you want a company like Google or Facebook or Pfizer or one of those big companies saying, I'm going to invest in Newry or Derry or Belfast. Yeah. What they need is certainty. What they need is clarity. And what they need is to be able to have what they would call visibility out 10 years. Now, if you say, aha, uh-huh, every four years, this assembly in the North is going to determine whether you're European or British yeah. and you're tariffs and things, they'll run away. So I see this as in economic terms, very retrograde from the North. And once it's retrograde for the North, it's kind of retrograde for what we should concern ourselves about in the South. But what we should, but some of us do. But the second thing, John, is, you know, what you're seeing playing out is the sort of the end of the Act of Union. And this is what I find very interesting from our big sort of, you know, our historical, philosophical... Yeah, Act, hang on so. a second.
2: Just give us, give us, remind us of the Act of Union. Tell us. Okay,
0: so the Act of Union was in... 1801. So Dublin, again, remember what I say, if you walk around Dublin, you see all these amazing buildings, mm. all these extraordinary big boulevards and squares and Georgian buildings and Georgian architecture, really quite magnificent stuff, all built in the 18th century. So yeah. from about 1710 to about 1800. During this period, the economy of Ireland was doing actually very well, yeah. although and I want to get on to wealth inequality, although the fruits of that economy were going to a small aristocracy. But the ambition in Dublin was very much evident in the architecture. And then, of course, what happens, you have the Napoleonic Wars, you have the American Revolution. The American Revolution, so Thomas Paine, the chief pamphleteer of the American Revolution, started writing in Dublin. Dublin was a hotbed of old-school Republican ideas, which subsequently manifested in Wolf All right. They got their intellectual ideas, actually from Adam Smith, the economist, we talk about it as well, but also this idea of Rousseau, this idea of coming from France and from America, of liberty, equality, fraternity. And, of course, the British couldn't stand that. So, firstly, you have the British in 1776 get shaken by the American Revolution.
2: Yeah.
0: Second, of course, in... 1789, 1788, 89. You get the French Revolution, right? This terrifies Britain because both of those revolutions were anti-British. One was the colonial revolution, and then of course there was the anti-monarchist revolution yeah. in France. The British then get become terrified about the United Irishmen and republicanism in, in in Ireland. Then, of course, you have the 1798 rebellion. Yeah. the 1798 rebellion scares the bejesus out of Britain because it was actually so violent. Uh, you know, we forget that 70,000 people were killed in Wexford. Wow. alone. This is a huge, huge, I remember, traumatic...
2: I remember doing this in history, but I actually don't remember the, the numbers.
0: Numbers God. are phenomenal. Yeah. Numbers are really phenomenal. So, of course, you get Britain panics and says, hold on a second, we cannot, London, cannot indulge the fantasies of Irish independence even if those independent people are loyal to Britain and sort of English aristocrats, yeah, yeah. I always call them Cromwell's lucky NCOs who actually got <laughs> Ireland after the Cromwellian Wars. Anyway, so eighteen hundred and one, the Parliament in Dublin votes to close itself down. Huge bribery going on underneath, mm. of course, and unify with England. So it's the Act of Union between Ireland and England, 1801, yeah. that followed the active union between Scotland and England, which was 1707. Right. So then the United Kingdom, as we know, it, of Great Britain and Ireland comes into being. So the active union is what is the dominant political status quo through the 19th century, Victorian. And then, of course, you get the rebellion in Ireland in 1916, whatever. What I see in Brexit is the unravelling of the active union. Yeah. And it's a big, long historical... I see it in big historical sweeps. And that's why I worry about Northern Ireland, because it's the sort of last festering legacy uh, of the Act of Union. That's why I'd be worried about Johnson and his rather cavalier attitude towards the North, because I believe that Johnson is using the Unionists to cement his own ambition, which is to get an election as soon as possible, to drive the Tory party to the right, to drive them to the nationalist right, and he becomes a nationalist leader. I think that's his strategy. And in so doing, he's using the DUP and ultimately he will abandon them, but he'll abandon them to us. Yeah. Because we're the people who have to look after them. So, so what what is
2: Arlene Foster missing here? What, what is she not getting? or Or is it just pure desperation that... That is blinding her to the economics, the, the practical economics, as you said about the needs of Google or it needs needs to attract something. I mean, Harland and Wolf went to the wall, but they've since been bought.
0: They have, but it's going to become a theme park. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not an industry yeah. anymore. Look, I think that what you have in the north is politicians on the Sinn Fein side as well, not just the Union side, who are determined. To believe that success in politics is extracting money out of the exchequer in London—that's what they regard success. So I think the more handouts you give a, a region, the weaker, not the stronger, it becomes. The weaker it becomes, yeah. that they have to stand up on their own two feet. And ultimately, in the north, what you have is the politics of tomorrow, not the politics of next year or the year after. Mm. And whatever little victory you have over your neighbour is sufficient. Yeah. But of course what's happening in the north is massive brain drain, particularly of Protestant kids yeah. who go to university in England and Scotland and never come back. Well, same with what happened here in the same what happened here. 80s and the- but we turned it round because we did the right thing. I can't see them turning it round at all. Yeah. Because they're doing the wrong thing all the time.
2: But what about the European side? Well, you you start off saying we should reject it.
0: Well, I think the Europeans, when you hear about the EU thinks this, it's actually Dublin at the moment. Yeah. I think the Europeans basically are saying, look, you two have a scrap here. You and the Brits. We'll do whatever you Irish people want. Whatever you feel is right. (laughs) right. We're not going to abandon you. You're members of the club. As a member of the club, whether it's going to inconvenience us or not, we've got your back. Yeah. So that's what I think is going on at the EU. But of course, the EU doesn't want to be seen as being the people that say no to Johnson. Yeah. Because then he drags them in to the political game that is the next UK election. And that political game is clearly going to be Johnson saying, look at me, I represent you, the people, against the elite. And the elite are the European Union and the government and the judiciary and the media and the intellectuals, whatever he decides, mm. the southern liberal media. So the European Union are loath to offer him any ammunition. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're entertaining this particular British proposal. They're going to be softly, softly. I think ultimately they will reject it. They know that Johnson cannot take the UK out because yeah. they have what he calls the surrender bill, which is the Ben, Tony Ben's son, Hillary Ben's yeah. proposal. What will happen then is Britain will have to get a extension and Brexit will go on until the 1st of January. So we're back in the loop again. And we, the Irish government, should not give them a way out now. We should just wait and wait and wait. Not least because anything that Johnson is proposing, I think is damaging to Northern Ireland and ultimately that will be damaging to us.
2: Yeah,
0: We're delighted to announce that the Dublin Podcast Festival have debased their currency profoundly by allowing John and I get on stage on the twenty eighth of November, a Thursday, in Vicker Street, for a bit of chats, a bit of economics, a bit of malarkey, and hopefully a wee bit of lateral thinking. Join us if you fancy it. Have a gander at Ticketmaster.ie, Dublin Podcast Festival, Thursday, twenty eighth November, Vicker Street. See you there. Now, let's talk about wealth taxes, John. I was looking in the United States about Elizabeth Warren, who's emerged as the front runner in the democratic race for the first time ever. And one of her big ideas is wealth taxes. And it's interesting we were talking early on about the active union because I was walking through Dublin yesterday and I was looking up, have you ever in the College Green, opposite Trinity College, if you look at the Bank of Ireland building, Mm. you notice one thing, all the windows are bricked up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a gorgeous building. And it's got no windows. Yeah. So you think, why is that? There's windows everywhere else. Mm. And you realize there was a wealth tax in the Georgian era called the window tax. And the idea <laughs> right. was, it's a really interesting idea, is that people who had windows were rich. So if you think in the pre-electricity era, everything was dark and rich people wanted natural light. Yeah. But we in this part of the world have very little natural light. Unlike the Mediterranean's who sure. want shade, we wanted light. So rich people in the Georgian age, had massive, massive windows because they wanted to live in that little bit of light that existed, Yeah. whereas poor people lived in dark. They lived in windowless hovels in the dark, particularly the urban poor. So in order to raise money, the crafty Georgians thought, how do we raise money? We tax those people with windows, and they imposed a window tax because <laughs> only rich people had windows. Right. On the, based on the number of windows? Based or the size number or of windows? windows. The size and the number of windows okay. per house. And of course then, people who didn't want to pay the tax, very mean fellas, bricked up the windows. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that is, that's really mean. It's really mean, isn't it? So if you walk around Dublin now and you look at old Dublin architecture, you will find in lots of old Georgian buildings, one window is bricked up. Yeah. And the that's reason right, one window that. was bricked up because the tax only kicked in, I think, if you had five windows. So, they'd have four windows and brick up right. one of them and get away with it. And very often on the top floor, they'd have half size windows as well. Like half size windows yeah. as well. But that was architecturally because you didn't need big windows because there was more light up there. Right. But it was cheaper as well. It was cheaper. But, <laughs> but if you look around, if you walk around, walk do your Marion Square, do your Fitzwilliam Square, do your Stephen's Green, do your all around that, have a gander, and you find bricked up windows everywhere. Yeah, And these were incredibly mean Georgian lads <laughs> who were trying to avoid the tax. Now, it's a very blunt tax avoidance scheme, but what I want to talk about is wealth taxes because they have been with us for years and years and years. And now wealth inequality yeah. is so dramatic. It has become so dramatic in the last 20 or 30 years since the Reagan-Thatcher deregulation of financial markets. I was listening to Elizabeth Warren the other day. She's making this front and centre of her campaign. And I get the impression that we are now at a tipping point where wealth taxes will become totally normal all around the world because wealth inequality is so phenomenal. And what I love about economics and politics is the way the pendulum swings through generations. Mm. So the pendulum swung from the 1930s to the 1980s, where wealth taxes were the norm. Then in the 1980s, you have deregulation. You have Mrs. Thatcher, you have Reagan. Wealth taxes are cut for rich people. Rich people accumulate much, much more wealth. And now I think the pendulum's swinging again. And if you listen to anyone on the left, they are talking about the reinstation of wealth taxes. And it's interesting because... It's the very wealth inequality that drove things like Brexit. So it seems to me that we're at a moment where 2019, 2020, 2021 will go down in history as the period when wealth taxes came back because wealth inequality is so enormous. So what is the difference then between wealth and income? Really good question. The best way to look at it is that wealth is what accrues to you. If you are wealthy, your income comes from your assets. So, rent, stocks, dividends, and our ownership of companies. So, your income every week is coming from an asset. Income, on the other hand, is that your income comes from wages. So, you go out to work. So, it's the difference between those people who depend on income from assets and those people who depend on income from wages so if you think about it wealth gives you income when you're asleep when you're not going yeah. out to work yeah and wealth is the accumulation of years and years and years of income yeah and the interesting thing is that on income equality Ireland and all over Europe we do really well in trying to minimize the difference between income at the top and income at the bottom. So for example, there's a thing called the Gini coefficient, which divides the top 20 percent's income by the bottom 20 percent's income. And in Ireland, it's about four times. Okay. The income of the top 20%. However, wealth inequality is hugely different. So what you see is a dramatic increase in wealth inequality at a time when income inequality is remaining quite static but wealth inequality is what's driving people's sense that they're being locked out of the system. Right. And this is what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are going after in the United States, and this is what I believe lots and lots of political movements will go after in Europe.
2: Okay, but my gut feeling is with the likes of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and all the rest. We all believe in And Jesus
0: Christ. <laughs>
2: Jesus Christ. Jesus <laughs> Christ, the man above. But... The argument that I keep hearing, particularly from America, is if you keep hammering the entrepreneurs and the businessmen with taxes, then it serves
0: as a disincentive for innovation and entrepreneurship. Again, this is a nonsense argument because, number one, you're not hammering anywhere. What we're talking about is maybe taking a percent or two off the very, very wealthy, money they wouldn't even notice. Right? Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is that at a certain stage, the innovation that sparked the initial wealth is many, many years ago. And what actually drives the wealth of many Americans is not innovation or entrepreneurialism, it's access to deals that nobody else has. This is the idea of privilege, that wealth gives you privilege. The third thing is that the most innovative societies.
1: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind.
2: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: In the world, are not the United States, if you take Silicon Valley out of America, that one bit, yeah. America's unbelievably uninnovative. <laughs> and yeah. as we said about Africa last week, the most entrepreneurial people in the world are Africans, are poor people. So what you have is this fictitious and I think rather mendacious narrative which is generated by wealthy people, which is that, you know what? We are the cutting edge of innovation. There's very little evidence of that. So for example, in Ireland, it's the most innovative people, the most wealthy people, people own property, property is bullshit. Property does nothing. Yeah. Innovates nothing.
2: Yeah.
0: It's just a captured piece of rent that is amplified by policy. So my sense is that unless we address wealth inequality, we will constantly have extreme politics and the choice is ours. And of course, the most emblematic version of that is Trump, who represents everything that is the extreme end of wealth inequality. In the United Kingdom, Brexit is a kind of hybrid, but something broadly broadly similar. And unless and until we reduce wealth inequality, it's a natural tendency for people to think I'm going to vote for the person. I don't have a stake, but I have a vote. And I'm going to vote for the person who says he's going to take back control for me because I feel I'm falling backwards. And the more I fall backwards, the more radical I'm going to become. And that's exactly what is at the root of populism in Britain, in America, and increasingly all over Europe.
2: And it's ironic that the people who are leading that are the wealthy.
0: Look at the United Kingdom. You have Jacob Rees-Mogg's, who is an upper-class hedge fund owner, finding common ground with working-class patriots yeah. from Sunderland. These people don't realise that fucker will sell their company five times over on the markets, and he'll deposit his money in an offshore company. That's what happens.
2: Yeah. And of course, trying to spread wealth is very difficult. Precisely. Uh, So it's very hard for people who don't have wealth or assets to actually get on the the ladder.
0: Yes, it is. And even assets that don't generate income. So like a big house that you live in or doesn't generate income. What it does is it confers status. Wealth confers opportunity, privilege, access, all Mm. these things which are very hard to gauge economically, but we know that they profoundly change people's lives, their life chances, their opportunities, and how they get on. And the reason that wealth inequality has amplified dramatically in the last 10 years is two things. One is, after the 2008 crisis, the world decided to combat the recession by cutting interest rates. And when you cut interest rates, you drive up Asset prices, right? So people who depended on assets for their income got wealthier by doing nothing, yeah. Because of asset yeah. prices went yeah. up, so house prices went up, stock markets went up, the values of companies went up, mergers and acquisitions went up, all that stuff, right? So those who already owned assets did extremely well, but at the same time as we reduced interest rates, we also opened the world up to competition globally, yeah, from China and India. Now, what China and India do. Is they put a floor on wages, they drag down wages. So what we're seeing at the moment, asset prices are driven up by low interest rates, zero interest rates, but wages are being driven down by hyper competition. So it means that people who depend on wages for their income have seen their income fall, but people who depend on assets for their income have seen their income rise. Right. And consequently, you see this big gap emerging between the wealthy and the workers. And this is what's driving, I believe, populism. Because what happens is, if you feel you're falling back in society, yeah. if you feel there's outside forces that are reducing your opportunity, you turn to politics. You say, protect me. Yeah, of course. And then you vote for the guy who says, I'm going to look after you. We're going to take back control. We're going to make America yeah, great again. Precisely. It's yeah. that elite people. And, yeah, they've yeah. Been... and so consequently, populism and the radicalization of the youth is being driven by wealth inequality. And the reason the radicalization of the youth has been driven by wealth inequality is because the real vector for wealth inequality is the housing market. If you own property in a period of low interest rates, property prices go up and rents go up because that's the income from property. But if you don't own property, your take-home income goes down because you're spending so much on rents. And think about it demographically. Young people don't own property. Middle-aged and older people own property. Yeah. So the middle-aged and the older are actually getting richer at the expense of the young. So you've got all this in the mix and it's all driven by wealth inequality.
2: So elderly people are downsizing, there's a, again a transfer of wealth to the
0: elderly. A, there's a transfer of wealth to the elderly and B, there's a transfer of wealth to their children. Yeah. So you get this concentration of wealth. Yeah, yeah. And the concentration of wealth is a problem. And the reasons a problem. is four reasons that wealth inequality is a problem, right? The first reason is if you feel that you don't have a stake in society, if you feel you're falling back in society, you will then end up as a totally rational person deciding, I want some of that back. So people need to have a stake in society yeah. in well, order to buy in. Well, that's completely natural. And the amazing thing is, the second amazing thing is if you have a stake, your behavior changes. And the most interesting, one of the most, and I you know I read psychology all the time, mm. whatever, one of the most interesting experiments I've ever seen done about the impact of having a stake in society or having a future, yeah, is the following. In the United States, there's an experiment done not that long ago with a thousand kids, a thousand poor kids, right. and five hundred of the kids, their parents were given the cash in a fund that they could use for their children's university education and the other 500 parents were given nothing and the idea was what happens and something amazing happened and the researchers didn't expect this that when those children were 3 so they were given the money when they were 1 mm. and the money couldn't be used until they were 18 so there was How no much payoff. by the way to be no it was the exact amount of a second tier American University. So it's, what's the 20 grand a year? No, I have no idea. I think it's I, a lot. It's about yeah. 20 grand Right. So yeah. think about this. So but they couldn't use it till they are 18. And at the age of three and four and five and six, those kids, both groups, were tested how they were doing in maths, how they were doing in arithmetic, yeah. how they were doing in writing and reading. And by the age of four, so this is the preschool kids who were just beginning to learn. And then by the age of six and seven, the kids whose parents were given the fund began to do better on every single metric than the kids whose parents weren't. And what it was, was the kids whose parents were given the fund changed their behaviour towards their children's education. So they read to the kids at night, they'd sit down and say, have you done your homework? They do counting games, all that stuff.
2: They recognised the opportunity.
0: They recognised that they have a future. Yeah. And you know, I've always said that that idea that poverty obliterates the future. That's the idea. Yeah. Poverty destroys tomorrow. So... Think about it, if you have a stake in society, your behaviour as a parent changes towards your children and this amplifies the positive impact. But the problem is, it denigrates the negative impact because the kids who don't have a stake are locked out really early. And that's what makes inequality so endemic, that if you don't have a stake, you get locked out at a very early age. That's the second issue. The third issue is that wealth inequality is totally inefficient. One of the great myths of economics, John, you hear it all the time, is the rich guy creates jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's bullshit. Rich people actually destroy jobs. Go on, explain that. It's a really fundamental kernel of economics. What drives jobs is demand. And demand is lots and lots of people having an average income in their pocket, spending a little bit every day. Yeah. That's demand,
2: right?
0: Aggregate demand. Think about a billionaire. So a billion is a thousand million euros, right? If one person owns a billion, the likelihood is he's going to hoard. He can't spend enough of that money. Yeah, okay? of course, yeah. So he hoards money, which is why you have loads of wealth managers because they take yeah, rich yeah. people's money and they manage it, right? Yeah. So rich people hoard money. They don't spend. Imagine that billion euros wasn't held by one person but was a million people with a thousand euros in the pocket. Those million people... Would spend that thousand euros that would generate massive aggregate demand. Aggregate demand generates employment. Yeah. So actually, rich people destroy jobs by hoarding money. Whereas poorer people who have a higher percent propensity to spend generate much more demand, economic dynamism, and consequently jobs. So massive wealth inequality is profoundly inefficient. Right. For generating jobs and tax revenue and opportunity and all that. And then the fourth issue, John, is contrast. That absolute wealth doesn't annoy people. It's the contrast between what you have and what I have. So if you're sitting at home and you see that fellow down the road, he's got a new car, That's he's going to his holliers, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah, blah. No, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's the contrast. And because of social media, everyone sees the contrast. So in the old days, very rich people hid their money. Yeah. You know, when we were kids in in Ireland, there's loads and loads of rich people, right? Yeah.
2: The whole idea of quiet money.
0: Quiet money. So the rich guy would, you know, be right. Now, of course, it's all this flash bullshit, right? Mm. So people are seeing wealth on Instagram. They're seeing people's different lifestyles. They're saying, fuck it, I want that. So the contrast. So all these together, these issues, the inequality, the opportunity, the contrast, the inefficiency, are all fueling political ramifications, which are I want to vote for the person who's going to take back control because I've lost control.
2: Yeah, and so this is what's driving populism. Precisely. Okay, obviously everyone has a a sense of fair play and wealth inequality obviously is something that needs to be addressed. But I think the perception, you spoke about this before, the perception of wealth inequality is a bit skewed.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, John. About four or five years ago, I did a documentary on RT about wealth inequality in Ireland. Mm. And here's a clip from it. And it gives you a really interesting insight into the difference between perception and reality. In a poll of 1,000 people, we asked, in an ideal world, if you were to share out the wealth of the country, what would you think is fair or equal? And it's kind of what you'd expect. The richest 20% would have a little bit more. And at the other end, the poorest 20%, well, they'd have a little bit less. And then we asked, how do you think the wealth of the country is actually shared? And unsurprisingly, yes, you thought it was unequal. You thought the wealthiest 20% would have almost 60% of the country's wealth, and the poorest 20%, will they just have 11%. So that's how unfair you think Ireland is. But do you want to see the reality? You believe the wealth gap in Ireland is bad, but it's worse than you think. So again, this is what we would like it to be. And this is how bad we think it is. And this is the reality of wealth in Ireland. The richest 20% own 73% of the country's wealth. And the poorest 20%, they don't own the 11% you think they do. They own a meager 0.2%. And if you look closer, the top 5%, well, they own almost twice as much as the entire squeezed middle 60% have. And remember, these aren't just economic statistics. These are people real realise. And you know what's interesting, coming back from that clip, is that survey after survey after survey shows that Irish people and Americans and British and Europeans believe that wealth inequality is wrong. Okay, Mac, that's income and wealth. But put some flesh on that, put some
2: numbers on that, and tell us how how big, how dramatic this is.
0: Well, the difference in wealth and income is is phenomenal. But what we want to focus really on this podcast is wealth, capturing yeah. the size of wealth inequality. Now, luckily, Finn McLaughlin is back from Chicago. Brain box. He's out in the wilds of Connemara. He's got two sort of gears, it seems. Chicago, Southside Chicago <laughs> and Connemara. He's back there. He's on the line. He's done the numbers. He's going to give us a lowdown. Hey, Finn. Finn, you're back from Chicago. Give us the crack yet in Connemara.
1: Yeah, what's sorry? Uh, back in Galway, out in the middle of nowhere, which shit Wi-Fi. So it's a miracle you can hear me That's, at all.
0: It's good to have you back. It's good to have you back, Finn. I want to let's 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 get some data. Let's talk about wealth inequality in the United States. What's the headline figures? You don't need to go so granular, but give me the the, the big figures. Oh ah, yeah,
1: sure. We we love it granular, <laughs> but yeah. So you see a lot of talk, whatever it's the the Democrats banging on about it because it's campaign season, but. Just to put it, put it three, three facts that are pretty, pretty astounding. So the three richest Americans, who are Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Bill Gates, own more wealth than the bottom half of the country. So what is over 300 million people in America, so three people own more than 150 million. So that's fact wow. number one. Fact number two, the net worth nearly tripled for the top 1% between 1995 and 2016, whereas for the middle class which is still recovering, obviously, from the financial crisis, has barely moved. And it's been actually negative for the bottom 10% of the wealth distribution. And that's based on research by the Brookings Institute. And then finally, because it's America, you see that everything's split along racial lines and the racial wealth gap has actually widened as well. So the median white family owns 10 times more wealth than the median black family, which is pretty crazy.
0: Yeah. No, just Can I just ask you about, you're living in Chicago. Can I just ask you there, Finn, do you feel that in Chicago, the racial wealth gap, how does that manifest itself?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm based in Hyde Park, which is like in the south side of Chicago, which is, it's changing from wealthy and being around the university to being, I mean, like, I've taxi drivers telling me, no man, you can't, you can't be walking here late at night. Like, but yeah, it's really it's really that stark and there's a lot of that to do with basically racing that was built into the way American cities were developed and it's it's pretty shocking.
0: And tell me, Finn, now I'm listening at Elizabeth Warren, I'm listening to America, I'm listening about wealth tax. We talked earlier on in the podcast, John and I were joking about the the window tax. If you were to tax wealth in Ireland, give me an idea of how much money could be raised from that without kind of this aggressive idea of hammering the witch as you hear American Commentators talk about like just small taxes on wealth. What could you actually generate?
1: Yeah, sure thing. I mean, first off, I guess it's important to say that there are obviously some problems with the wealth tax in terms of you have to think about liquidity and that people may be wealthy but they might not might not have access to that wealth. So it might be in property and stuff that's hard to convert into cash that you would then pay a tax on. But let, let's ignore that for a second. Let's just look at the figure. So in The first quarter of 2019, this is based on central bank figures and applying those statistics from that 2015 task report. We can see that the top 10% own 415 billion, the top 5%, 291 billion, and the top 1%, around 115 billion. And that's based on the CSO figures. So that's the lower end. Now, if you were to propose, let's say, a 1% tax on the top 5% based on those figures from the CSO, and assuming they still hold after five years, there's good reason to believe that they've actually gotten worse, but let's just run with that. So a 1% tax on the wealth of the top 5% would yield 2.9 billion euro. Now, if you apply that to the top 1%, which is even fewer people, that would still yield 1.14 billion euro. These are huge figures. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For 1% sure.
0: is, 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 you know,
1: you wouldn't notice it if you're that rich. Well, you'd, you'd hope not. But again, you have to you have to caveat this with there's issues around liquidity, there's issues around how do you prevent people from fleeing the country of capital flight. And there's some interesting details in Elizabeth Warren's proposal to kind of combat that, which is something people should definitely read deeper into if they're interested.
0: Just give me, if you were to impose a 5% tax,
1: just before we go. The 5% one gets a, a little bit more exciting. So... Uh, if you apply a 5% tax rate on the top 5% of the wealth distribution in Ireland, and these again are based on those CSO figures, that would yield 50, 14.5 billion. And now a 5% tax on the top 1%, that would yield 5.7 billion. So again, yeah, huge figures.
0: That's extraordinary. Listen, Finn, as always, man, it's good to have you home. Enjoy Connemara. Talk to you soon. Good luck. Cheers, Talk Finn. Later. Bye. Now, what is really interesting is that humans, all of us, have this really quite sophisticated way of looking at the world which is people understand their privilege if they're born in the middle or in the upper and people also feel was how would I like the world to be if I wasn't myself so that always finds me if I walk by somebody who's homeless yeah or you go to a very poor country or you see somebody who's down in their luck deep inside all of us I think is a reaction like how would I like to be if I wasn't as lucky as I am because it is luck and that translates into most people feeling I want more equality because you know what I could be that guy on the street yeah and I think it's very deep in in all of us I don't think people are greedy I don't think people you know the economists say oh we're full of self-interest we're not actually we're communitaire and how that expresses itself is in survey after survey after survey people feel we should be more equal and what's driving that is the understanding of the, the serendipity of life, that it's all luck, you know. You don't have to go to India to figure this out. You walk around the streets of Dublin, you see people who are homeless. You think, you know, fuck it, that could be me. And to bring us back, this is why people like Elizabeth Warren, I believe, are pushing an open door if they can just frame the discussion right, which is, how do we tax wealth? Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. James O'Brien, ladies and gentlemen. When I look at the UK and I travel over there, I always remember in not the distant past, Tony Blair won three elections with more than 100-odd MPs, Mm -hmm. more or less from the centre. And when we used to think about the Tory party, it was this one nation, Tories and they weren't a million miles away from the social democratic mm. Tony Blair labour rights. What has happened to this constituency that up until six years ago dominated centre left, centre right and delivered governments all the time? I, I think that you had a combination of two events that history teaches us will always run like a dose of salts through any liberal democracy, however, secure and safe you think it might be. You had the refugee crisis caused mostly by the events in Syria where we sat on our hands, uh, for good or for ill. And then you had the economic crisis of of, of 2008, caused in large part by the sort of deregulation that that came in under under Thatcher and Reagan. And then when you've got a population that feels threatened both economically and socially, it is incredibly fertile ground for, for bad faith actors. Then you throw in the EU, which has been the mother of all scapegoats in Britain for 30 years. So no one ever tackled the truth. No one ever told the truth about the European Union. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.